You're listening to the So What Podcast, where we discuss biblical and theological topics to ask the obvious question. I'm your host, Kyle Bashirs, and I'm joined by Matt O'Reilly, Travis Buchanan, and Lanier Wood. The So What Podcast is recorded in partnership with the University of Mobile, a Christ-centered academic community providing liberal arts and professional programs on campus and at a distance. You can find out more information at www.umobile.edu. If you enjoy the show, you can help the podcast grow by rating and reviewing it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. So we have we have a kingdom ethic that challenges the values of the surrounding culture. Or completely reverses yeah, them, just t- turns them upside down. Opposes them, perhaps. Yeah, yeah the, the system of the world is to make friends with that and John is to make God your enemy. The unholy trinity of the, the flesh, the devil, and the world. There's a, there's a world system there's a spirit of the age that if you become friends with, you make God your enemy. It's God's kingdom is upside down in the, according to the world, the world's thinking. This isn't the world of creation, the good thing that God is redeeming, that is groaning, waiting for its you know, final lib- to be set at liberty, like the sons of God are also groaning for that. The world is, is something else. I also want to draw attention to, so we have Jesus's baptism, the descent of, this is in Matthew's gospels. We're building this picture. Matt has given some helpful comments about the context, but they see the spirit descend upon Jesus. In Luke, he announces his public ministry by going into the synagogue and opening the scroll of Isaiah and reading Isaiah 61, one through two. And Isaiah 61, one through two says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to proclaim the good news to the destitute, there's the same word, it's Matthew 5, 3, for poor, to comfort all who mourn, etc. And so you see in Jesus's announcement of his public ministry in Nazareth, you have the first two beatitudes right there in the text of Isaiah. And there's echoes from Isaiah and Psalms, which are also largely poetic books in the, in the Hebrew scriptures that are making its way into this poem that begins the Sermon on the Mount. And so I think there's this transference happening. The spirit of God is upon Jesus. It's anointed him to proclaim this ministry, the good news of the kingdom of God. And Jesus saying, you know who the spirit is also upon? The poor, those who mourn, like God's favor is given to them too. It rests on them like the spirit of God rests on me. And so I think as we go through the sermon, the way to flourish as a human being to thrive is to have the spirit of God in your life. And the way that looks like is you will do these things. You, there will be practices associated with that, that manifest the spirit in your life and in whatever situation you're in. So let's talk about them. Yes. Verse five minus two verses. Verse three, (laughs) blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Here's the first statement. So I pulled out a, John Wesley's stuff on the Sermon on the Mount is pretty well known, or he's well known for his stuff on the sermon. I pulled it out and was flipping through, and he remarks, and this struck me, he says all of the, he calls them tempers, these sort of, I guess, uh, attitudes, mourning, meekness, qualities of people, All the tem- he says all of these are more or less present in all believers all the time. However, there's a progressive movement, right? So they start with, sort of the beginning of the Christian faith and moving through these sort of states, tempers, are stages of Christian growth, right? So for Wesley, poor in spirit is what you need to enter into Christian discipleship. So he says, in one instance, who are the poor in spirit, without question the humble, 
they who know themselves, who are convinced of sin, those to whom God hath given that first repentance, which is previous to faith in Christ. So for him, this is kind of a, an experience of conviction for one's need for Christ. He says in one other place, poverty of spirit then, as it implies, the first step we take in running the race which is set before us is a just sense of our inward and outward sins and of our guilt and helplessness. This some have monstrously styled the virtue of humility, thus teaching us to be proud of knowing we deserve damnation. But our Lord's expression is quite of another kind, conveying no idea to the hearer, but that of mere want, of naked sin, of helpless guilt and misery. So for Wesley, this first step towards, and he does use the word happy, but in the 18th century would have had a different connotation than it does now. But for Wesley, this deep happiness begins with a sense of deep helplessness. Which then leads to mourning. That's good. The one verse that always comes to mind for me with what it means to be poor in spirit in contrast to God, who is certainly not, he's rich in spirit, is Psalm 51, 16, 17, David's confession of sin, that he had sinned against the Lord and him alone, that his sin was ever before him, that he wanted joy restored to him. And he comes to this point of confession where he says in verse 16, speaking to God, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You're not pleased with a burnt offering. So here he's talking about the entire system of sacrifice that the Jews have been practicing that God gave them as a way to mediate themselves to him. And he's saying that's, that's the external things. What you really want is the core of it. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O oh God, you do not despise. And so that, that perfect sacrifice given to God is this place of being poor in spirit. And the reward, not as if it's something you're earning, but what is, what is being given to you freely by God, who is rich in spirit, ends up being the entire kingdom of heaven. And I think that's, a, that's an incredible contrast. And it's, again, so counterintuitive. You wouldn't think that thinking about your own shortcomings and your own sin and your own inabilities and your own weaknesses would be the ticket to reception of the very kingdom of God, and yet there it is. It has no place for pride or haughtiness or, or any of those other things that the world tells us are the necessary ingredients for success. It is interesting that Jesus pronounces woes in the Sermon on the Plain in Luke, you know, somewhat of a parallel passage after the Beatitudes, and the woes are on the rich and those who are full now and those who laugh now and those who are admired by others. So there's the reversal, you know, kind of the loop is closed. So these people are blessed. It's not who you would expect. And the people who you think are blessed in worldly terms are actually the ones who should fear for their souls. And you see in the gospels, it's the religious leaders that are furthest from the kingdom of heaven and the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the outcasts that are closest, both in their proximity to Jesus and in their readiness to acknowledge that they're poor in spirit and need need to repent yeah, and they, believe. They recognize that there's a brokenness that has to be restored. There's a severing of the relationship between them and their creator. And without that first recognition, how are you possibly supposed to know your redeemer if you don't think there's anything about you that needs redeeming? Matthew saves his woes for chapter 23. But they're there notably, yeah. you know, and I think, and perhaps there's a, a sense in the movement of Matthew's gospel, just sort of, 
reflecting on that, that the first speech from Jesus lays out this, these kingdom values. And then from that emerges this conflict between Jesus and the power players. And when they respond, you know, they respond negatively to his vision of the kingdom and violently to his vision of the kingdom with crucifixion ultimately. And his response is, you know, you've missed the kingdom. Woe upon you. So the hearing the vision of life that Jesus is articulating and responding positively to it is crucial. So being poor in spirit, you're saying Wesley says leads to a mourning, not what happens after the night's over and not even a M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. And that's the very next verse in verse four. Jesus moves to that and says, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. What kind of mourning is he talking about there? I think recently of loss of loved ones in my own family. We've had a few since fall. And so there's been a lot of mourning in my family. And that's a word that comes to mind. I also think about the mourning that we just read about in Psalm 51 with David, mourning over his sin and recognizing um, that that severing of the relationship between him and his, his creator and realizing the importance and the severity of that. Is there more than one kind of mourning here? Or are we talking about one specific type of mourning? And, and what is that comfort that is promised the ones who are blessed because they're mourning? Yeah, Wesley says they mourn after God. Like, what does he mean? Yeah, so I mean, I think the idea there is, if you're thinking about this in terms of progressing towards a mature discipleship, if you discover your helplessness the immediate response then is this kind of deep grief over the sin, the separation between us and God. I've sinned against God. I've behaved in such a way so as to uh, resist his best for my life. I've rejected his values. I've, re- I've, I've, I've treated people in ways that don't honor God and honor their dignity as human beings made in his image. And, you know, and so anyone who is experiencing that conviction that the Holy Spirit brings is going to begin grieving over the distance that that they have cultivated between themselves and, and God. And the result of that is God will now work in that sphere. He's going to work to close the gap in that distance. And when you recognize it and you're brought to a point where you comprehend that distance, that's the moment when grace comes in. That's the moment when he starts to work. So God says to those who grieve over the deep reality of their sin, I will comfort you. Mm -hmm. Spurgeon has this line commenting on this where he says, how great a blessing is sorrow. Sounds really strange, but he gives the reason why, how great a blessing is sorrow, since it gives room for the Lord to administer comfort. Uh, When you finally realize that you have a disease or an illness or a sickness, that's the moment you go to the physician. And when the physician can diagnose what's wrong, even though you're grieving, now is the moment where you can begin to be healed and that this physician can begin to work on you. But if I'm in denial (laughs) that I have an illness or that there's something wrong with me or I'm not grieved at all by that illness, in fact, I prefer it, there's not a lot of hope there. Wesley says, they shall be comforted by the consolations of his spirit, by a fresh manifestation of his love, by such a witness of his accepting them in the beloved as shall never more be taken away from them. This full assurance of faith swallows up all doubt as well as all tormenting fear 
God now giving them a sure hope of an enduring substance and a strong consolation through grace. That sheds light on what the word blessed means. Blessedness is the divine comfort that comes when you grieve over your wickedness. That What does it mean to be blessed? It means to be comforted by God. With this deep, rich consolation, the presence of his spirit, participation in Christ, and the ministry of the spirit to us, full assurance of faith, that's what human flourishing looks like. That's what thriving human life looks like. And I think it issues a challenge. Bonhoeffer goes through the Sermon on the Mount and his cost of discipleship. And he has the same point about mourning, that this is a mourning over what the world does not mourn, that it is broken, that there's sin, that there's sorrow, that the world is full of us. We bring, and he says this, the imperative then of that, he says, for the disciple community does not shake off sorrow as though it were no concern of its own, but it willingly bears it. That is, we don't try to explain it away. We don't simply medicate it, not that there's not place for medication, but there's actually a embracing it. You know, when somebody who is grieving is grieving, we don't simply say it's going to be better tomorrow. The Sermon on the Mount is calling us to sit with people in their grief and mourn. Yeah. And to what extent do you see that embodied in the life of Jesus? He's the one who shows up at the funeral and weeps with the mourners, right? He's the one who weeps in Gethsemane. He's the one who gives his whole being, his whole self, his whole life to walk with us in our sorrow. I think that's an important point. I want to avoid the temptation to spiritualize these things too much or make it all about the internal psychological state of the person. So I think mourning over one sin, yes, is required, especially if you realize how truly destitute you are spiritually, but Jesus mourned and he wasn't mourning over his own sin. He was mourning over the devastation that sin causes in the world, in the lives of others and death that it brings death like Lazarus. You know, he mourned that Jerusalem would not come. He longed to gather them and they would not come. He mourned in the garden of Gethsemane. And so, you know, Paul says, just be sorrowful, but with hope, you know, don't grieve like pagans do, grieve like a Christian should, but still grieve. And so funerals and are occasions where we should validate everyone's intuitive sense that death is an enemy and stealing and unnatural in a sense. There's an earthiness and a reality to Christian spirituality that's not just psychological and that's not ignorant of the facts of life, so to speak, and that walks through those things. And I think there's a strong, I think the spirit of God is again brought up here I mentioned the baptism earlier, this anointing of the spirit to proclaim the good news, the quotation from Isaiah, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. The name given to the spirit in Jesus's upper room discourse in John, John 14 through 16 is the comforter. The spirit is the one who will come and comfort. That's one of his roles. That's a way to understand his identity. And so one way to think of how is it that the mournful are blessed like we've been saying, well, God draws near to those who are brokenhearted and in comforts and is close to them. And that's a precious thing. It's more precious than having possessions. Just thinking about the Beatitudes from two angles, we've talked about kind of the personal discipleship journey, which is there. And when you think about that, but you've also got, if Jesus is articulating the values of the kingdom of God, 
then we need to take on board the reality that he embodies those values as well, right? So poverty of spirit, what does that look like for Jesus? Well, it doesn't look like conviction over his own sin, but it may look like, if you want to talk about, I'm hesitant to use the word helpless, but dependency on his father, I think is a fair way to talk about it, especially after he gets crucified because, you know, it's the spirit of the God who raises Jesus, uh, the, the God who raised Jesus from the dead that does the work there, right? So the Trinitarian relationships are active. God, the Father, through the Spirit, Jesus throws himself on his Father, and his Father ministers to him and sustains him in that place. So so his poverty of spirit looks like that, right? He, he understands that if he's going to go to the cross, he's going to be ultimately dependent on Father and Spirit to sustain him, to restore him, to vindicate him, to bring him to new life and exalt him to the right hand, to the throne of heaven, where he experiences joy and pleasure forevermore, according to the psalmist. In doing that, he carries our sorrows, mourns with us, on behalf of us. Jerusalem, how long I've desired to gather you, but you would not. You know, there's this deep sense of grief and sorrow that's happening there. So Jesus, all along the way, and we can tease this out as we work through the rest of these Beatitudes, if the Beatitudes and the sermon as a whole, the Beatitudes in particular, the sermon in general, if they are God's design for human best, human flourishing, Jesus as the ultimate human being has to embody those values. We should see them in his life. And in that way, they introduce the rest of his ministry. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Yeah, I mean, you see that all throughout Jesus embodying these values. He washes the feet of the disciples. He washes the feet of Judas. You know, he makes himself the lowest. He goes to the very bottom before being raised and exalted to the very highest point at the right hand of the Father. And so these are not just ideas, these are to be incarnated in life. They're to be lived out. They're to be taken seriously. This is a program for following Jesus. It's not just ideals. Paul is saying that in Philippians 2. He's also connecting it to that our mourning or that our sorrow, our grief in here, our humility, our humiliations connected with Christ, which, Matt, as you're making the point, this is a union with Christ thing. This is not just ethics to do them the best and receive what we want from God. Right. He's not giving us a list of rules that we sort of have to tick. No. You know, Let okay. me get that. Poor in spirit, check. Got it. Morning, check. That's not what's going on he's here. He's asking to emulate himself. Yeah. He's, yeah. he's inviting yeah. us to participate That's right. with. in his kingdom being. That's right. Yeah. In his way of being human. Yeah.